0: Uh, the message from last week? Go and listen to it. It's really good. The whiteboard. I love those whiteboards. Um, whether you listen to it by audio or you watch the video, it's great. Um, I think the... I had like a the love of God moment in the thing. Um, and I know so much in my head that maybe those are the most memorable moments for me now, I think, when I listen to preach and when I preach. But when you talked about the veil... And on the other side of the veil was a God that was filled with mercy. But in our hearts, we didn't see that's what was on the other side of the veil, right? Our hearts saw like an angry, mad, displeased God. And it was keeping us from coming to him. And man, that uh, as I was listening to that before I went to church Sunday in Tulsa, that just really blessed me, right? And the illustration of the wall being broken down in the middle, right? And you find the mercy, the merciful God on the other side. And, and for so long we've described mercy as God not giving us what we deserve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to say that there's no way you can explain that aspect. But that's a very poor way of explaining it. And really what mercy means is to be, confil- to be filled with compassion over the suffering of another that you consider to be your equivalent. Mm-hmm. It's the, the pain... It's the the grief you feel over the suffering of someone that you see yourself in their face. And it's coupled with a strong desire to alleviate their suffering. It's like the tenderness that you feel in your heart. And we've all experienced that when we've seen someone suffering in the world, right? Um, I think a long time ago, I did an example um, of this family in the UK, their oldest daughter, uh, who was healthy and vibrant, 13 years old, playing sports, doing everything. All of a sudden, she she comes down with an illness. They thought she just had a flu or something. It wouldn't go away. They take her to the doctor. She ends up with some type of uh, rapidly growing uh, brain cancer. Oh. And she dies in like eight months. Oh. And the family is just devastated, you know, and the family's talking about what happened and how they're trying to deal with it and everything. And they, they couldn't even clean out the little girl's room, Right. And then when they went into the little girl's room to finally clean it out, like a year after the fact, she had a life-size mirror, and they flipped the mirror. They went to grab the mirror to move it out of there, and when they grabbed the mirror and turned it around, the girl had written a note to them, all from the top to the bottom of the mirror. Really? Talking to them about how she was going to be okay. And that this wasn't the end for her. And she went into this long thing. And man, I could just feel this thing on the inside of myself just rent. It's it's like that when you feel that knot in the back of your throat. And you feel like the the air taken out of your stomach. And you are just filled with compassion for the people. And you're like experiencing it simultaneously with them. That's the mercy of God. Mm -hmm. It's not a mechanical, mathematical kind of thing where God's over here saying, Well, I won't give them what they deserve. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. That's not what it is. It's talking about an emotion in the deepest part of the being of God. And when you want to talk about what that could be like if it just manifested, you could talk about how the earth shook at the cross when death came upon Jesus. You could talk about how the ground shook and everything shook. That's the deepest part of God's being, man. When it quakes with grief and compassion, man, it will shake everything. That's what's in God's hearts for people when he sees them suffering at the hands of sin. When he sees the, the death that's come upon them because of sin. Now, at, at the beginning of talking about that, I said, well, God didn't give us what we deserved. You, There's a, a small little aspect of something that's true in that statement that I think is much better explained. And what it is, is, is yes, we earned death because we trusted in our own works for life. We did earn the death that came upon us. It's not like it accidentally came upon us, right? Adam ate from the tree that brings death. He trusted in his own strength instead of the strength of God. And that brought death into the earth. So you could say that we earned death because we trusted in our own works for life, right? That is a true statement. But even in that place, God's heart was filled with compassion towards us. In the, in the Hebrew scriptures, it talks all the time about a guy being filled with sorrow and mourning. And what it says is that they would rip open his, we would call it a shirt, but that's not what they call it. They would rip it open and ah, yell to the Lord. And that's what God did when he saw death and the suffering that death brought to us. He felt such a grief in the deepest part of his being that his bowels shook that everything inside of him shook and he ripped open his chest and said, let it never be so. Right? And because he felt that, he showed up and avenged our blood. He showed up and conquered the death that was tormenting us. Now that's the mercy of God. And so when Maurice drew up that picture in the veil of our hearts and showed that the wall and what was on the other side of the wall, man, Was mercy. It's like in that moment I was knowing God, not by way of knowing that he exists, but I was actively partaking with God in what he felt in his heart for us. I mean that's a powerful, powerful thing. And that's what that's what that's what it means to know God. We think of know God just in an intellectual sense, right? But when the scriptures talk about knowing. It's talking about an intimacy with someone whereby you're so one with them that you can feel what they feel. You can think what they think, right? And you share with them in their life on account of sharing in the same belief, on account of sharing in the same heart, right? And that's what it means when Ezekiel talked about God giving us a new heart, right? It's not a, a, a heart take out the stony heart and give us a heart of flesh, right? Would he, would he, the stony heart is a heart that doesn't know the heart of God. It can't see into the heart of God. And so what Ezekiel's talking about, what God says through Ezekiel, the heart of flesh means a heart like unto my heart, a heart that is kindred with my heart. Meaning, I'm going to come and plop my heart out on the table in front of these guys. And in these guys, seeing the deepest part of my heart and being able to see the deepest part of my being, they can share with me in my heart. And the stony heart, the heart that's hardened to my love, the heart that can't comprehend my love for them, will be removed from them. And they'll be able to fully comprehend the height, the width, the depth, and the breadth of my love for them. And their lives will be rooted and grounded in my love. That's what it's talking about there. Right? When it talks about giving us a new heart, it's talking about giving us a new faith. Right? Man had a certain belief. We had a certain wisdom. And that belief was contrary to the wisdom and belief of God. It wasn't the same. It was the opposite. And so God had to get it right to give us his heart or to put in us his spirit of faith. That's why it goes on to say, I will give them a new heart, even a new spirit. Right? A spirit also, the spirit also speaks of wisdom. It speaks of a truth. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Right? So the Holy Spirit is a wisdom. And so when God says he's going to give us a new heart, yes, it's a mystical thing. And I wouldn't find fault with somebody if they want to describe it as a mystical thing, as a creation. But it's not like he's talking about ripping out our physical heart because he finds it to be disgusting. He's talking about the belief we have. He's talking about removing the mind of Adam from us and giving us the mind of Christ. And the way that he does that is by pouring out the spirit of his faith into the earth. So that faith can dwell in our hearts by us believing in the testimony that God's given in Jesus Christ, right? And that's what it's it's talking about there. That's why Paul would go on to say in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for therein is the power of God unto salvation from faith to faith, from faith to faith. We see the faith of God. And then that faith becomes our faith. And that's how we have a new heart. Yeah. <laughs> right? <That's> right. <laughs> we live by His faith.
1: I like what uh, Jesus said in John chapter 5. He says, I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, but you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. But how can you believe who receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God so God is the one that has love in him for you but you receiving other men's testimonies and not my testimony but if you believed in my testimony then you would receive the love of God and you would have the love of God in you. Yeah. So who are you, what is your source of life and of love? You know, where, where does that come from? And he said, he identified it, he says, you don't have the love of God in you. And that is the issue, that yeah. is the issue. That is the issue. <laughs> you know,
2: it's interesting you described that from faith to faith because we were taught it's from this belief, you know, you holding on and praying for this and then from this. It was like a stepping stone. Like here's this faith, here's this faith, you're gonna get there. Just these little steps of faith you're gonna do.
1: Yeah, it's all about our, our faith. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. No, no, it's from God's faith. To our faith. to our faith. It says yeah. God gave all people the measure of faith. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about you're saved by grace through faith. And then it says, this faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, right? And then he goes on to say, not of works, lest any should boast. So this salvation that will come alive inside of you, it isn't your faith. It's from the faith of God, and he's come and given it to you as a gift. In case you didn't know, God brought forth all life through the spirit of faith. So in the day, he wants to save you from death and bring forth life in you. He's going to do it by the spirit of his faith. And that spirit of faith is full of grace, meaning it's the work of God. It's not your work, right? And and he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And so the whole dynamic there is God's going to do a work to save us from death. And the way he's going to do that is by getting... His faith inside of us, and His faith is the power unto His life. And when His faith comes and dwells inside of us, it's like a seed that produces life in us. And that life is so great that it even chokes out the weeds or it chokes out the death that had come upon us. And it leaves us in the place where we're in the very image of Christ Jesus. Right? And then we we walk in the good work of God. It's God's good work. And we walk in His good work and we find our lives animated by grace. Right, so real. Jesus actually meant when he said when he said one thing is needful. He actually meant that, and I don't know if you guys realize it, but Martha was busy with what the church is busy with now, and the the pastor in Ireland, Felim. Uh, I love I love the way that guy teaches. If you like uh, short, powerful, concise messages, go listen to Felim. And. You'll get it. And that guy is preaching the gospel. But one of his messages is calling out the Martha Church. And because the Martha Church is filled with many labors. Right? And listen, you could say it's good what Martha's doing. Martha wants to serve Jesus. And it's not bad to do good things. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's not evil for Martha to want to be. But notice what Martha was busy with. And she had forgotten her first love. And said, Martha, Martha, Martha. You were worried about many things, but Mary is doing the good thing. She's doing the one thing that is needful. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, to sit at the feet of Jesus, because that sounds like a mystical thing, right? How are you going to get it right to sit at the feet of Jesus? And when you think of it only as Jesus as a person, you can kind of misunderstand there, but Jesus is also the Word made flesh. He's the faith of God. Come in the person. Faith came in Jesus. So the way you get it right to sit at the feet of Jesus is for the faith that was in Jesus' heart when he walked the earth as a human to be plopped out in your midst, to be set on display in your midst. And as you behold the faith that was in Jesus, by hearing, what will happen is that spirit of faith creates, it forms within you the very faith of the Son of God right? It perfects within you the very faith of the Son of God. And it brings forth in you the very life of the Son of God. And so, there's one thing that's actually needful for the church. And what's funny is, the Martha church, when they hear you say that, they don't hear you talking about how God's going to bring forth His life in you. They hear you saying how you're not going to do anything. Because their mind is so filled with doing. They only hear in terms of doing and not doing. They don't hear in terms of God's doing right? And so it's interesting now that I've sat at the feet of Jesus long enough that Christ has been formed in me. And I'm not talking about I have salvation. I'm talking about the thinking of Christ. The way Christ, the sight of Christ has been formed in me. When I get in these conversations with the Martha church and they want to talk about doing, I'll do like Paul did. Well, since we're speaking as fools, I will also now speak as a fool. Let me put all my doing next to your doing. And let's see who's doing more. Because if you're interpreting my doctrine to be as if the life of God won't come out of me, let's see what life is coming out more. Right? right. And it's missing the point. It's not about will we have life. It's about how will that life come forth. And I promise you, if you're filled with the fruit of the Spirit, then that's when you're going to find abundance in your heart. When you see things going on. And you're going to feel a strong desire to do stuff. The people in this church are the most generous people I've ever met on a number of fronts. And we don't the funny thing is we don't have to ask the people to do anything. Like they just want to do it. Like people call me up and they want to do it. I want to do it. How can I do it? Can I do this? Can I do that? And they want to do it. And it's an amazing thing that when people have the seed that is Christ sown into their heart by the Father, that seed produces abundance in their heart. Right? And they, their heart becomes like uh, the basket of the fishes and the loaves. Remember, all the disciples saw lack? All they saw was lack. We don't have enough. We got five fishes and three pieces of loaves. Or you could flip it around. But Jesus saw abundance there. Right? Because he saw that he was busy with the life that can't lack, he was busy with the life that was like a river of living water. And when you sow the seed that is Christ into people's hearts, you're sowing the very abundance of God's life into their heart. And their heart becomes the multiplication of the baskets. And they see no lack. Right? And they feel a grace come upon them. A strength. Right? But you don't tell people they need to produce the strength. And you don't tell people that they need to do the things. You preach about the thing that God's done. And you allow people to be captivated by the work of the Father. And then they'll be animated with the life of the Father. Right? And they'll find themselves doing what the Father would do. (laughs) Right? And not everybody will manifest in the same area. People will manifest in all kinds of different areas. And it isn't for us to judge one another. By what right. we think we're doing that they're not doing or what they should be doing. And I'm doing this and they're not doing that. And blah, 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 blah. That's comparing yourselves amongst yourselves. And that's when the foot wants to come and tell the arm that you ought to be the foot. Right? And you judge them because they're not being the foot. Well, maybe they're being the arm and you ought to just let them be. <laughs> right? Does that make any sense?
2: Well, I mean, when, when they said the pathway of hell is good intentions... That's exactly what it means, that the good intentions come from your own works. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, anytime, anytime, if you look at our society today, most of what we do is based on good intentions. And it all becomes a disaster. Oh, yeah. Because, because
0: of, we're trying to do it ourselves. Yeah. That's Absolutely. exactly right. We're lusting after. Listen, lust lusts after life. It doesn't lust after death. It's just that when humans lust after producing life, they don't have life in themselves to produce, so it can only produce death. That's why it's called lust, the lust of the flesh. What do we think the flesh is lusting after? I promise you the flesh ain't lusting after death. Do you know what the flesh feels when it's confronted with it would call death? It don't like it, and it will sweat blood. Like, Jesus' flesh sweat blood. Because that flesh that Jesus was clothed in, even though he is that eternal life, that flesh that he was clothed in, that flesh did not want to shed its blood. That flesh did not want to go to that cross and die. I promise you that. And the carnal mind that was in the earth was like, you can't do that? What are you thinking, man? We're supposed to live. We gotta preserve our lives. And so the flesh is lusting after life. And... If you think that you're going to produce life by your works, then that's lust.
2: Well, I mean, I mean, it's like throughout history, like, you know, 70 years ago, somehow in Germany they convinced that Jews were going to take away from their life. They are going to take away from them financially, socially, in all other areas. And that was the motivation. Like, I mean, even today, people in their desire to live you know, you know, bonkering up and, you know, doing whatever they do is causing death
0: in their life. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And Satan uses that to torment the church. Because the church actually wants to see the kingdom more than the world. And then the church gets stung by this idea that they're gonna bring forth the kingdom. Right? And the way they're gonna do it is by their works. Listen, man, I promise you, God already did the work to bring forth the kingdom. He already did it. And so the, th- the thing that we do is we declare the work of God to bring forth the kingdom. And it's just like in Genesis, right? Notice God did all the work first, right? And then he made Adam and Adam was supposed to work in, walk in God's good work. And it talks about tending the garden. Tending the garden is not talking about plowing the, the physical dirt or picking the physical weeds. Although you could do that in the cool of the day if you wanted to. Tending the garden was about Adam ha- having dominion over the earth, eating from the tree of life, and not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what tending the garden was. There was the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, Adam had dominion over the earth, And the way he would tend the earth that he had dominion over was by eating from the tree of life and planting the seed, the incorruptible seed of God's life in the earth. If you want to talk about farming and gardening, that's the sowing that Adam was there to do, right? And he would reap from where that seed produced, not where he produced. And so the kingdom of God is all over again. That's why it's called the new creation. God come once again to create, just like he created in Genesis, And Jesus is the seed that come into the earth. And Jesus isn't just the seed that come into the earth to do a new creation. Jesus is the last Adam to tend the garden so that the new creation, the work that was needed, could be done. And so God does a work to make a new creation, a new earth. And we come forth from the power of the work that he did, meaning we were brought forth after he finished the work, just like the first Adam was. We're brought forth after he finished the work. And you know what we do? We walk around in the earth and declare the work that God did to preserve the world from death and to preserve our lives from death. That's what you're supposed to do. That's how you declare the kingdom. That's how you're the salt and light of the earth. The way you're the light of the world is by declaring the goodness of the Father. What was Jesus doing right before he stood up and said, I'm the light of the world? What was he doing? He was declaring the goodness of the Father towards sinners to remove the condemnation of death that was reigning over them. That's what he was doing. That's how he was the light. And so the way the church is the light is by manifesting the Father. And the way you manifest the Father is you glorify the Father in the eyes of people. And the way you glorify the Father in the eyes of people is you declare the goodness in his heart towards mankind. To remove the sentence of death that was reigning over them. You declare the goodness of God to come and stand next to people as their advocate. You declare that God is with them to rebuke the devourer. You declare that God's not ashamed to be with them because of their sin. You declare that God's not despising them because of their sin. You declare that the death that's come upon them has not come upon them from God. That God is not the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. But he's the good Samaritan. That when he finds a person having been beaten and bloodied and left on the side of the road, by the thief. He shows up and fills him with the wine of his life. and makes a place for him to dwell in his house for all eternity. That's the light of the world. And how are you the salt of the earth? Salt is a preservative. What does it preserve from? Decay. It preserves things from going rotten and bad and becoming corrupted. So how is the church the salt of the earth? By declaring what God done to preserve the earth from death. By declaring what God done to reconcile the world back unto himself. Thereby preserving the earth from the death that Adam brought into it. Right? That's how you're the salt and light of the earth. You (laughs) declare those things. Now in the midst of declaring those things, the spirit can move as the spirit wills. And the spirit will move in many different ways to bear witness that this is the truth. It will bear witness in the hearts of people. Filling it with love. It can bear witness in a number of different ways. Right? But that's what it means to be the salt and the light of the earth. And the church has got no idea what it means to be the salt and the light of the earth. And so it's like, Jesus, how, how, how can you be a city on a hill? I mean, do, do we know what Jesus is talking about when he says the city on a hill? You know he was crucified on a hill, don't you? And so he was the city on the hill. We are the very body of Christ. And what did Jesus G- Jesus was the salt and light of the earth on that hill. When he was nailed to the tree, how was he the salt in the life? He didn't try to preserve himself. He declared the goodness of the Father to preserve him. Haba! See how he pointed to the work of the Father? Do you see? Do you see how he needed life? Do you see how he needed his life to be preserved? And he, Habba! He calls out to the Father. Right? The church has lost its flavor. We ain't so salty. The kids have this funny saying, that's salty. He's salty. (laughs) So
2: so the ushers who click each time someone raises their hand and gave their life to Jesus could lose their job. (laughs) Because,
1: you know, God doesn't need the ushers to bring them in, right?
0: No, I mean, that's that's amazing that we would even have that kind
1: of... (laughs) You know, what's interesting is uh, the way the church, just in general, portrays being salt and light in the world is that we behave differently than the people around us. And when we think that it's our behavior that is above those around us, that is the salt and the light to the earth, it only brings enmity. It it cannot bring unity. No. When you think what you're doing and the way you're behaving is better than the people around you. But that is what is portrayed as being salt and light in the earth. Yes.
0: it's not, it's not from the spirit of meekness.
1: That's right. I
0: love, I love what it says about Abraham and how Abraham glorified God. Because we talk about, well, to be the light is to glorify God. Right? Well, yep. this is what it says about Abraham and how Abraham glorified God. He considered not the deadness in his body or the deadness in Sarah's womb. He considered the strength in the life of God to overcome death in the flesh. That's what he considered. That's right. That's how you glorify God. And so Abraham considered that God possesses within himself a life that is so strong that it will even overcome the deadness of my body and the deadness in Sarah's womb, right? And he called upon that. He walked in that. He believed on that life. And Abraham's life is a testimony of what? Not of his goodness, but that's what the church has turned it into. Right. We look in, I love Abe. I talk about Abe more than anyone. And thank God that Abe continued in the faith. But Abe himself would say the scriptures are not a testimony of his goodness. They're a testimony of the goodness of God. And that's why his life does cry in the earth still today. It testifies of the goodness of God. That's, that's yeah, the when, when
1: you're trusting in God and not in yourself, something's going to come out of you. There's oh, yeah. going to be a fruit that comes out of you. But it's not the fruit of what you're doing or what you do. Things will be different that emanate from you, but it is not the things that you're doing that are the salt and light to the earth. Yeah. It is it is a life that comes out of you that is the salt and the light to the earth. It, and it's the it's the pointing
0: to the life. That's right. But you're right. Yeah. yeah. That life will animate you. Yes. It will animate you and it will be seen. And it becomes a sweet-smelling savor to those who are saved, but it also is a sign to those who are perishing. And what do I mean by that? You see, Stephen glorified God, right? I see the Son of Man, right? He was glorifying God's ability to overcome the world. And what came out of Stephen? A love that was otherworldly. And it was the kind of love where he prayed for the people that were hating him and were even going to kill him. Do you see how that was a sign to them that they were perishing? Because he had a life where he's even praying for those who hate him. Jesus come and talked about the father loves his enemies. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus was describing the righteousness of God, the strength in God's life. We'll love his enemies. Well, here's Stephen praying for those that are going to kill him, and that was a sign to those guys that we don't have the life that this guy has. Right? Now, to those who have that life, we read about Stephen, and we're like, hallelujah. It's a sign to us of the power of the life we have. But to those that don't have eternal life, it's like a head-scratcher.
1: We need to stone this guy.
0: Right? Well, exactly. We got to get rid of this guy lest we have to continuously behold uh, that we're dying and, and right. he's not. Let's kill him so we can convince ourselves that he's the one dying, not us. But then Paul goes away and how, Jesus says to Paul, How long will you kick against the prick? Because the life that manifested in Stephen was a sign to Paul that he was perishing. And he knew it. He, this guy is busy with something and he, he, he talked God. I mean, Stephen quoted all the scriptures. I mean, Paul would have been standing there. It's not like Stephen come and talked about something that wasn't the scriptures. Linda Lou, no. we were just talking this morning about hi, where, hi. oh where, oh where, <laughs> is sweet Linda Lou? Thank you. My goodness.
1: Good to see Becky will be so happy to see you. Oh, I'm happy to see everybody. Has a
0: Paul would have seen Stephen quoting all the verses. Mm. Stephen didn't come talking some new age nonsense that wasn't in the scriptures. He starts running down all the scriptures. Mm. And Paul's like, this guy's talking God, but I don't have the kind of life this guy has because I don't find myself wanting to lay down my life for for my enemies. In fact, I find myself wanting to kill my enemies, (laughs) (laughs) which is what I'm doing to this guy, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so that was a sign to Paul that he was perishing. And I guarantee you, Paul would have heard the stories about the Lord Jesus. And how he prayed for the people that were nailing him to a tree. Even the centurion says, truly this must be the son of God. Because only someone that was one with God, who only one who has an immortal life could do that. And Paul would have heard about that. And then what does Stephen say at the end of his diatribe when it says, they're cut at the heart and they gnashed at him with the teeth. And they threw him outside of the camp to stone him. Pa- Steve, the, the spirit of the son manifested in Stephen. That wasn't Stephen saying this is the right thing to do. He was taken captive by the Spirit of the Son. And he begins praying for them just like the Lord Jesus did. And Paul hears, Steve, I see the Son of Man. And immediately, that's the same thing Jesus did on the cross. Right? Well, that was a testimony to Paul that he was perishing. (laughs) Right? Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And then Jesus loved his enemies. This guy, (laughs) Stephen was a follower of the way. He was a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And he also is now loving his enemies. And it was a sweet-smelling savor to the apostles when they heard of the grace that come upon Stephen. But to Paul, it was a sign. He's in death. He's dying. Right? And it pricked his heart. It's kind of like the church in Afghanistan when we talked about that here. It was a strange emotion for me because on one hand I I wept that they were martyred because death isn't right and death is the enemy of God and God's people. But then there was also something that was a sweet smelling savor to me as I heard of those people knocking door to door witnessing of the resurrection. It was a sweet-smelling savor to me because I could see the life of God working in them. And I could see they were taken captive by life. And I could see the strength of the life that we share together in with our Lord. And it was a sign to me of that life. And so there was part of me that was filled with the joy, and there was part of me that wept with the sorrow. It was a strange thing. And I find the same thing when I read about Stephen. It's, like a, it's almost like you feel a simultaneous strength and sorrow where you could feel the power of the life that you're busy with, the faith that you're busy with. And it's a sign that death has been overcome. And that's what I saw with the Afghan church. It was a sign and a wonder. And it was a sign and a wonder to all those people in Afghanistan that death has been overcome, right? They love not their lives even unto the death. That's what it says in Revelation. It says that the word of their testimony was the blood of the Lamb, meaning that death had been removed far from them, that God had come and supped with them in their house, and death had passed over them. And they loved not the lives they had in this world, even unto their death, because they saw that the life they had inside of this earthen vessel was the very life of God.
2: That makes me think of the song Rescue the Perishing, Care for the Dying. They were trying to rescue who was really perishing. That's
0: right, Linda. Mm -hmm. You see, it's such a different thought between the mind of Christ and the carnal mind. Yes. It is such a different thought. It, in fact, that's why it says that the cross... That's one of the reasons why it says that the, the cross confounds the wisdom of the world. It confounds it. Like when Jesus described Lazarus and the, the rich guy. It confounded the wisdom of the Pharisees and the wisdom of the world. Because here was this Lazarus guy who was so downtrodden, despondent, so poor in the world that he's sitting on the side of the road. Dogs are licking his sores, right? And the the rich guy is the one that looks like he has the blessing of life. And Jesus describes Lazarus as the one who had the blessing of life. Confounds the wisdom of the world, right? It makes it look foolish. It makes it look foolish. And we see the same thing in the Lord Jesus. And That's why Paul was so... I mean, for Paul to encounter the glorified man Jesus after last knowing of him on that cross. And your wor- our words can't really do justice to what that looked like because they beat that guy. Um, I mean, he was marred. and it, it actually became like a 100% accurate representation of how sin will mar the human figure. And it it mars the human figure to where it's it's indiscernible. You can't even make out that it's a human. And that's Paul's last viewing of Jesus, or thoughts of Jesus. And then he sees that man glorified. It confounded Paul's wisdom. How could this guy that looked like that be the blessed of God? How can that be? And then Paul started asking, how can it be? And then that's where he starts getting into the faith that was in Jesus' heart. Right?
2: Yeah. Then he hear Stephen say, I see him high and lifted up. That's amazing.
0: There he is. Yeah. <laughs> I see the son
1: of man. And,
2: and that's not his last picture. <laughs> no, because
0: then, then, then Paul saw the son of man. You know what I find interesting
1: <laughs> is how the church kind of views uh, what they are really involved with is imitating a life they're trying to, they know that a life exists that, that is to be desired and that, that overcomes the death in this world and they, that life does exist. They don't, many, many folks don't really possess that life so what they do is they try to emulate or, or to imitate what that life is and that's what you see going on, that's why i quoted a, a, a scripture from matthew many will come to me in that day saying lord lord we did all these things they they honestly believed they were serving jesus and it was really just kind of emanating from them they were imitating a life that they were meant to have you know and it's a very sad very I mean, sad thought and, and even just the there's some <laughs> that are
0: stuck in that trap that are like the galatians where they think that's the way yeah and, but they don't know about the life they possess, right? And they don't know the way life works itself out in us. They don't understand the way God brings forth life in us, and Unless, they're busy trying to bring it forth themselves. And they know the Lord. That's right. You know,
1: this is believers. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, but they but they're confused about the truth mm-hmm. because of the teaching they, that they know of the Lord. They, they know of well, the Lord. no, they may know the Lord. They know the Lord. They know the Lord, like Christ lives in them. Yeah, well, yeah. Then
2: they are. They are not
1: going to be told. No, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. In yeah, the context I, of that verse, I yeah.
0: forgive me, I flipped the page. Uh-huh. I, okay. I started a new thought from okay. there. Okay, okay. Right? We'd have a new chapter and verse. Yeah. I, I went on to say that there are also some that are caught in that type That's of one. work system. Oh, yeah, that have probably, genuine faith. Right,
1: yeah. But uh, they've been taught it, this is the way. Yeah. Actually, it's true of both. It's actually true yeah. of both.
0: But you're right, Linda. Those that have actually had genuine faith in their heart, yeah. but have gotten caught in the snare, that's right. they, they will not hear. I never knew you. Right. And that's that's okay. Jesus drawing a picture
2: because they've allowed Jesus to serve them with life.
0: That's right. They had an they had an authentic experience with the Lord in right. the beginning, yeah. and then they were taught the wrong way. Yeah,
1: absolutely
0: right. And you see that a lot I with the you see the Galatians. Yeah. I mean, Paul said. They received the Holy Spirit yeah. But then he said Christ had become no effect in their life As they went on
1: That's yeah. almost the whole
2: western church That's almost
0: the entire western yeah, church
2: But I think a lot of us can, can describe that
0: Oh absolutely Exactly.
2: I've listened to a, a sermon of Denise's It was my way When I first met Jesus I was so happy And then, then the church got a whole Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right.
0: yeah. We, got, we got grabbed just to use biblical examples And I think that's most of the people's experience In the western world mm-hmm. But that's all changing it's like the Galatians. And it's, it's even like Abraham. Abraham heard that he would be the father of The word of the Lord came to Abraham. We know Abraham truly believed because it says righteousness was imputed to him. Right there in chapter 12. But then Abraham thought the way was in the strength of his own flesh. And so he had some unbelief present about how he would be fruitful. And then he walked after the flesh. But then God came and encouraged him in the truth. And and that's kind of what I see going on in the, the church in the world today. That's why I made that post um, about what what I see going on in the body of Christ. I see the body of Christ as growing in the wisdom and stature yes. of sonship, mm-hmm. just as Jesus did before his ministry truly began. Mm-hmm. Nice. And see, what's happened is that just like Marie said, the church for so long now, and I think the apostles knew this was going to happen, the church for so long now has been busy trying to do what Jesus did instead of being busy with what did Jesus believe, right? Right. And that's been shifting where now the remnant is rising up and God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is starting to bring forth the declaration of what it is Jesus believed because that's what will cause the church to grow in the wisdom and stature of sonship. Right? And that's when you'll find the church as the city on the hill. Right? right? As we, that's what made Jesus the city on the hill. And so the that's church true. ought to be busy in itself with, what did Jesus believe? What is it that he believed? Yeah. What was the faith that was in his heart? And the church ought to be putting that on display. The problem is, most of the church has never heard that. <laughs> like Paul would come and say, how can they hear? unless? How can it's they believe right, unless they hear? It. Right? How can they hear unless there's a preacher? And then he goes on to, faith comes by hearing. I promise you, every good thing that you need for life and God-likeness is contained in the faith. And Paul comes and says, the way that you have this faith is by the hearing of it. He says the same thing in Galatians, where he says, this only would I ask you, received ye the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? This is only what I ask you. Okay. So you receive the Holy Spirit by the hearing of faith, not by the works of the law. Do you now think you're gonna be made perfect by your performing of works? Is that now how you think this spirit of life that came up into you? Do you, do you think that's how it's gonna work itself out of you? How did it work itself in you? <laughs> by you performing works or by you hearing? Okay, well the same way that it worked itself into you by hearing is the same way you're going to find that blessing of life being worked out of you by the hearing of faith. And that's why he goes on to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? right? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit comes behind in nothing that needs to happen when it needs to happen. And so how the fruit of the Spirit going to come forth in you? By you saying this is what we should be doing? No, no, no. It's going to come forth in you by the hearing of the faith that was in the Lord Jesus. That's why Paul said he lived the life that he has in this world by the faith of the Son of God. What he's saying is, I live in this world daily partaking with Jesus in the faith that was in his heart when he was nailed to the cross. And that's how I live in this world. And that has actually animated me with the grace of God. No one has to tell. Do you think someone had to tell Paul what he should be doing? Do you think someone had to tell Paul about the good works that he needed to be doing? Try and stop Paul. Try and stop him. And it's because he said, I'm crucified with Christ. He's not just talking about a mystical moment there. Although he is talking about a moment that happened in history. You could argue the most powerful moment that happened in history. I won't argue with somebody over the resurrection because I see them as one. I know humans struggle to see the beginning from the end in one picture. We see in splotches. But Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. He's talking about I have partaken with Jesus in the very faith that was in his heart when he was nailed to the cross. And through me partaking with him in his faith, it's as if I was nailed to the tree with him. My life that I live in this world has actually been born from the death I died with Christ. And the death I died with Christ isn't that I lost life. It's that I laid down the life that the world has to offer me. And I laid hold, I lambanoed, I received the very life of God. That's why it's no longer I who live. The power behind my life is no longer the strength in the world or the strength in my own hand. The power behind my life is the very power of God's life. And Christ is the manifestation of God's life. That's what Paul's talking about when he says he lived by the faith of the Son of God. What faith? There was a faith in Jesus' heart when he was nailed to the cross. That's the faith we're believing in. Why are we believing in that faith? Because we saw that that faith produced a life that overcame death in the flesh. That faith produced a peace and a love and a joy in a guy towards people that were even nailing him to a tree. That's why we believe on that faith. And that's why we no longer look as if we can be justified with life by the life that's in the world, or by the good works that we can do, or by performing the works of the law. Because we see this guy, Jesus, when his hands were nailed to a cross, and he couldn't do anything but call upon the name of the Father, this guy, Jesus, is justified with life. And so I'm now fellowshipping, I'm intimate with the faith that was in Jesus' heart when he was nailed to the cross. In my life, I'm crucified with him. I'm dead to the world and the world to me. Yes, I've laid down a life, but the life I've laid down isn't real life. It's the life that's dying. (laughs) When you lay down the life that's dying, then the life that can never die will pick you up. And you will find yourself walking in this world by the power of that
1: life. You see? The the love of Christ constrained him. The, The love of Christ constrained him. everything he did was motivated by the love of Christ that's it the love of Christ for the Father and we behold the love of Christ for the Father in Jesus and when we see that that love constrains us that's it that's simple as that
0: and what was the life and just to fill out that that piece John would come and say here in his love not that you love God but that God loves you and so yeah what Marie says is true about Christ's love for the Father but we want to interpret that through the spiritual mind. What was what was how was Jesus loving the Father? By having his mind filled with the Father's love for him. Yep. Yes. That's what it was. Yep. Right? Yep. He saw the Father loves me. He really loves me. <laughs> and that was him loving the Father. Yep. He loved the Father by committing his life into the hands of the Father. Yep. He saw that the Father loved him. Right? Mm-hmm. That's the love that constrained Paul. The Father loves. All these people, how do I know? Because Jesus is God. He's the chief of all things. He's that which has been from the beginning. And I see Jesus even laying down his life for sinners, for the ungodly. That love that he saw portrayed through Jesus captivated him, constrained him. Like Marie says, you ain't got to tell a guy that's been constrained, arrested by the love of God that he need to do something. I promise you. I promise you. You don't need to tell a person like that, that they need to do something. And rather, if you think people aren't doing what they should be doing, then the answer is they need to be arrested by the love of God. That's the answer. And so now you preach the message that will arrest them with the love of God. And you commit your desire for them to be fruitful into the hands of God instead of you thinking it's on you to tell them about how they need to be fruitful. Well, wait a second. I thought God promised he would make us fruitful. So in the day, you think that I'm not bearing fruit, well, then you should come and remind me of the promise. <laughs> you should come and preach the faith that contains the promise. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. We don't understand those things. Well, is not there ever a time where you would point out when someone's doing wrong, Brother Greg? Well, listen, in the day I come across a person who's filled with the fruit of death, and they think that that fruit of death is the fruit of life, I will prove to them that's not the fruit of life. But I won't prove to them it's not the fruit of life so they can now act right. I'll prove it's not the fruit of life so they can turn away from looking to the strength in their own hand and they can behold the strength in God's hand to give them life. You don't confront people's bad behavior so they can now act right. You, the law confronted the fruit of death to prove to us that we were revering something for life that was impotent and it was weak and it couldn't serve us with life. That's why the law confronted the fruit of death. Not so it could make people act right. The whole point was let me prove to these people the wisdom in their heart, the way that they think is unto life, is actually unto death. Let me prove it to them. Man. Glory to God. (laughs)
1: That's crazy. I just feel happy and satisfied. (laughs) It's crazy how kind of like opposite it's almost like it the belief that's in the world is opposite yeah. is. that of God. But the people that are of the world yeah. believe that that way is on delight. life. That's right. right. They actually, it's, it's insane. It's
2: like
0: Paul thought the same thing. Yeah. He yeah. was very busy before he met Jesus. Yes. And he was doing all kind of good
2: things.
1: Yeah. But it produced his desire to kill people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. But then he met Jesus... And all of a sudden, it wasn't him doing anything more. It was God in him doing it. And it
2: produced love and giving up his life for Listen, others. <laughs> the
1: Pharisees and the Sadducees. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the fact. Listen, those people, we, we know them as a people who uh, you know, condemn Jesus to death. Okay? So we think they were bad people. But when you look at the society that they lived in, those people were loved and revered. They were the good people <laughs> in life. They were highly esteemed for still their today. goodness. Still for, for their goodness. And he's still, still today. Yeah. But they yeah. reject yes. the one in whom the life came. And they reject the ones who declare that one.
2: Yes.
0: Right? Well, that's right. I mean, that's why it says the children mm-hmm. of the bondwoman will always persecute the children yes. of the free woman.
2: Yes. Well, it, it was subtle. I mean it was very subtle because I know what attracted me to church before and I, I don't mean to down it but was the good behavior. Oh yeah. The politeness, the good behavior, good behavior when you walked in. Now when you peeled off that facade of the people who were having good behavior, they were as messed up as we were. It's just they had the facade of good behavior. Yeah, and then, sure. and and then and then, you know, you become disillusioned because Um, you think that, you know, you, you, I guess you, you're attracted to good behavior and that's your criteria for that particular church is saying, okay, I go to church, I'll behave well. And you know, your relationships will get better. Your marriage will get better. Your finances will get better. Your employment will get better and all that sort of thing. And, and then, you know, that's good for, but then there will be disillusionment because, um, you know, because it's not real. And when you pull back the facade, you're like, this is just, there's two things going on here. There's the forced behavior that is taught with your own hands, and then what's really going on. And they're looking at their behavior is going to solve the problem rather than Jesus. Yeah,
0: That's exactly right. And that's what the Pharisees thought. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. The
0: Pharisees thought that. That's what they thought was the power unto the blessed life. And it's because they defined a blessed life by the good life the world can bring forth. The world can bring forth those things on the outside, right? But they're dead on the inside. And so that's what's wrong with the church, is the church is busy with the good life the world can produce. And then they're teaching the gospel from the perspective of how we're going to produce that too. So it's a manipulation Mm -hmm. of life. It's life-building instead of life-beholding yes right Right. it's life building instead of life beholding
2: well actually it's one of the um themes is building lives and what is it building lives and building relationships Oh, know the church church. yeah i mean which sounds wonderful
0: it does doesn't it? i mean you
2: know (laughs) like if you saw the oprah caption we're building lives yes yes yes. i mean it's it's, it's no different
0: the church of oprah
2: but but you know i think i think and and also too you know outreaches are good i mean to me and it's just my thought outreaches are dead if it's based on any motivation besides being animated by god yeah Mm it is and so you know a lot of times the outreaches are you know they'll say do this outreach do this outreach and you'll Fake it until you make it, and you'll find God in His outreach, Mm -hmm. in His doing, which causes more disillusionment. And and for the people who are the recipients of the outreach, they know. I mean, they know whether they're being used as a pawn, so that you can get eternal life, or you really feel like the love of God. I mean, they know in their heart. That's Mm -hmm. why. That's why. That's why. You know, I I always say the the biggest barriers to Christianity
0: are Christians. Mm Did you guys see Bertie's photo on, mm-hmm. on Facebook? Mm-hmm. He's got a person standing up against the wall and then another person facing them with a big, is it a tuba? That. that has the big uh-huh. thing on the end oh, and yeah. the tuba's in the person's face and the person up against the wall, it says person who needs to hear the gospel. And the person holding the tuba says Christian and then the tuba is conspiracy theories. And so the Christians are bombarding the people who need to hear the gospel with all the conspiracy theories instead of the gospel. All right, I gotta go. God bless you guys, thank you so much. This is
1: so funny, I came here at 9.30
0: thinking I was coming